Greetings from the void, everybody. Welcome to Chronic Media Consumption. My name is Kelly. And I'm Michelle. And today we're talking about animation. Specifically, we're going to be going over what makes animation successful with conveying emotion, where people get such attachments to characters and how we can make an animated lion one of the sexiest creatures according to you know current young fans i don't know millennials everyone likes kovu so <laughs> we have a little bit of a, a history conversation going into where we got started with all of this and where we are now because yeah i don't think anyone in 1919 really expected things to be as animated as it is yeah, animation has an effect on so many different aspects of filmmaking in general as it is now. Like it used to be filmmaking in general was almost always live action for at least the very, very early parts. Like when they first started showing film stories, they were live action with props done very theater style. The only animation you would see would be if somebody was coloring the cells after the fact to add a little bit of of color to the black and white film. But, I mean, everybody who's ever tried to do a little stick figure animation in the bottom corner of a book to do a little flip book knows that animation can be painstaking, but it also can be a really interesting way to convey emotions, thoughts, and plot lines. And I think it's something that is now finally being able to get all of the respect that it definitely deserves and has. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, there was a lot of snobbery <laughs> involved. They were just like, oh, yeah, that's a different thing. That is yeah. not something that sharing or, or really believing is going to be on this level. It's something that is more unique. In the and only it, time. Like, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. The only time it really made it into the big screen wasn't animation, but it was paintings for backgrounds, like the matte painting style that they do for massive scenes in movies. If you've you've seen Star Wars, you've seen quite a few matte paintings they use for backgrounds, but one of the more famous ones is the arrival of Darth Vader with all of those stormtroopers lined up. Those weren't added in after, those weren't stunt doubles or, or extras. That was literally hand painted. It was very fascinating. And a lot of concepts around animation were, they thought it was kind of childish. At least when I grew up, mm -hmm. cartoons were considered a childlike form of media. So as I got older, I started to find a lot of, a lot more people branching out into cartoons and illustration and animation to convey more adult themes. I mean, Ren and Stimpy. South Park. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yep. South Park I'll get into in a little bit, but <laughs> like <laughs> it is it's, it's it's it started it started with something simple and then the first the first animated feature length film was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937. And it was not expected and, to be successful. There were so no. many people who were thinking it was going to bomb and it was a waste of Disney's time. Yeah. And I mean, the the way that it was done, they literally drew, they watched these people 
do their dances, do the movements, and there were animators sitting there sketching and drawing how they moved, which is why so many of the characters in old school Disney animation films looked very realistic. The way that the the clothes moved, the way that the... It was very theatrical and it was very, very... What's the word I'm looking for? It like hit different. Yeah. And in some in some ways it was overacted and a, a caricature of create of these that and a lot of other animations followed the Disney model because Disney was kind of over the top pushing it so that it would be a adventure. You know, it's it's a huge separation from the norm. You were completely transported to a different fantastical world that wouldn't be represented in the world they saw around them. Right. And I mean, this film was an Oscar winner. Well, let me see here. Hold on. It was an Oscar nominee for Best Music Score in 1938. And in 1939, it became a winner of an honorary award mm-hmm. for significant screen innovation, meaning that they, they'd already taken filmmaking to the next level right there. And a lot of people followed in their footsteps cautiously, but continue to do so but you know before them uh, there's you know the black and white animations that many of which started out as comic book strips or comic strips that were in the news newspapers the first ones i think of are felix the cat and olive oil and you know those animations are based off of the caricatures that were in these stories that are exaggerations simple black and white dealing with basic problems of small challenges and I find it really interesting like olive oil and Popeye are not attractive they're like intentionally having these exaggerations of extremely long limbs and you know oddly shaped faces very large hands and feet and just like these exaggerations that aren't really humanoid and then in modern styles we have same things where there's a lot of exaggerations and divergences but they are still a little more recognizably attractive or based off of like a a person now and they are a little more complex like these early days they weren't super complex they were simple ink drawings that were utilized and they didn't have the digital functionality and 3D modeling that we have where you can build a character in a 3D modeler and have it so they see him on every side, have a test reel of their movements and then literally plug it into a story and have them move around like you aren't having to go cell by cell, frame by frame. So it's definitely an advancement that we've had. But one of the others that has been extremely popular was Betty Boop. I think Mm -hmm. she was one of the first ones to truly appeal more to adults. She was a pinup. And people were using pictures of Betty Boop on trading cards and postcards when they were going to war. She was started in 1930s and Popeye and Olive Oil as well as Felix's Cat were from 1919, 1920. So they had 10 more years of growth, but she was really kind of featuring the jazz lifestyle, the flapper-esque dancer. She had a lot more curves. She had the big baby doll eyes with the 
the distinct lashes and lips were painted and cute. She had clearly curled hair. She had a lot of features that I believe are based off of a African-American woman. Yeah, actually, she was based off of Esther, Esther Jones. Jones. Yes. Yep. yes. She was a black jazz singer in uh, around the 1920s. She performed in the Cotton Club. Yes. And so her her curls and her and her hair and the way everything was parted and her looks, her energy, all of that was all based off of a real person, but it was a, you know, distinct animation, but she was intentionally very cute and very sexy she's kind of like version 1.0 that then eventually became jessica rabbit (laughs) you know everyone recognizes her and her slinky red dress and and i mean jessica rabbit is is very iconic right there in so many ways number one being voiced by kathleen turner who herself is a sexual icon just that sultry low voice and her, the, one of my favorite lines, which is the line that I think everybody knows. I was is, about to say I'm it and you bad. took it. <laughs> Go like, for it. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn, drawn that, that way. way. <laughs> <laughs> and that also, that, that draws right into the whole piece of how these animators have the ability to, with just a few pencil strokes, evoke emotions from the audience from something that could just be considered a doodle yeah but instead is just another form of art and they they none of them follow the same pattern that's one of the things that's so interesting about animation is the ability to have such varied styles that Mm -hmm. still evoke emotion and energy they have the ability to make inanimate objects sympathetic with their movements, with music, with their facial expressions, if they have those. I don't know if anybody else grew up watching The Brave Little Toaster, but oh man, was I ever moved by the trials and tribulations of that uh, bunch of household items. Drama-inducing, yes, just yeah, a little. indeed, indeed. <laughs> and fascinating because, you know, they're inanimate objects they're given human characteristics and that is pareidolia is the thing that humans are kind of known for our ability to see patterns in random things and often assigning human characteristics to objects it's why people look at cars and they're able to say is it happy is it sad is it mean they look at power outlets and sockets and they're making little funny faces and we can find you know fruit that has an interesting facial expression on it or something and we're like oh look isn't it doesn't it look nice yeah. <laughs> humans humans are great <laughs> it, we yeah we see patterns in everything and one of the main patterns that we look for are faces because we're always trying to connect with something it's it's one of my favorite lines in i think the first episode of community with joel McHale and chevy chase was when he stood in front of his his study group held up a pencil and said it's why i can hold up this pencil tell you its name is steve and then do this and snaps it in half (laughs) and says and part of you dies (laughs) (laughs) and it's like you see the whole study group react. They're like, oh, you know. Steve, because 
No. You you've given it a a name. You have therefore given it some sort of a life. You've connected with an inanimate object, and by snapping it in half, you have lost that little spark, that yes. little part of yourself that gave life to this pencil. And that's something that animators do just constantly. Yeah. Yes. And like Brave Little Toaster, like you said, is is interesting. Disney did something with cars back in the day, not Pixar's cars. I'm talking about way, way back. They had a car animation where they used, while a lot of people had done car animations where the headlights were the eyes, Disney specifically had animations where the car's windshield was used as the eyes. That was a different stylistic choice, but it still worked. It allowed the headlights to kind of be accessories, almost like cheeks, mm-hmm. as the car would bebop along on the road. And universally, the grill is almost always the mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I've, I've seen that used. I've seen that used in stop motion animation too. The company that did Wallace and Gromit had done some car animation as well where they had the the headlights as the eyes and the grill as the mouth and the way that it's moving is definitely uncar like but it's it's something that you can relate to and it makes it that much more interesting that much more funny and, and it's impressive the cars are kind of extensions of the idea of the personality of the person is what they drive or what they ride. So like mm-hmm. a mount in an animated movie is going to have a different personality and you'll be able to tell who they are. They often don't speak. So you think like Maximus from uh, Tangled, extremely mm-hmm. opinionated emotive. and emotive yeah. animal that doesn't say anything but you know exactly what they're thinking purely from body language their their eye contact and glares and the way they interact with the world around them that's the way the way he has somehow has the ability to use his lips to blow air up to throw his bangs away even though in the real world not physically possible yes but in frustration he has that moment (laughs) where he frustratedly blows his bangs out of his eyes and it's it's something innately human that they're translating onto a a canvas that is not human just like mulan's horse khan had the same exact thing you know that whole down bessie yum (laughs) that that amount of emotion and you know you see other horses in the background where they did not add the personality to them and they're just set dressing but Mm -hmm. these ones that have that emotion that personality that you connect to that add that comedic relief that give you that extra oomph to the the show really have a ton of power and I mean, Disney's done a great job with a lot of their animations when it comes to animals. Apparently, it's a little easier to do animals than it is to do people early early on, especially when they were trying to get into the digital side because it's a little more forgiving to put fur on something than to have weird doll-like facial features and plastic skin. There's some stories I could tell about that, yeah. (laughs) But uh, I think of the Jungle Book. And how you could get the evil 
malicious um, behavior and meaning behind things, the playfulness, seriousness, the worry, you're, you're able to follow along. And the music does an amazing job of, of adding to this. But if the animation didn't reflect it, it would be disjointed. And it wouldn't allow us to connect to these creatures, art pieces as people, as emotional beings that are actually going to have some story we care about. It it draws you along. It's fascinating. The Lion King is one of the first very traumatic moments I remember as a kid when oh god, Mufasa. So sad. So sad. That whole bit is just devastating. I mean, a lot of people the first one was Bambi. That's also really devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, who Dumbo, framed Roger D- Rabbit? Yeah. Who framed Roger Rabbit was my trauma. Oh gosh, she animation. had a shoe. Oh, <laughs> when Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit screams, "Oh my God, it's Dip!" I was like, "Oh no, this is gonna be bad." Uh-huh. <laughs> I was right. Oh, scarring. Never so- felt so much for a shoe. Right? In my life. Right? And I can never watch that scene again. I don't think I've seen it since the first time. But oh, and yet another I'm just a side note, yet another amazing portrayal by Christopher Lloyd, the man who does all things. He's so good. Like I didn't relate the fact that Christopher Lloyd is both that character in Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Dr. Emmett Brown in Back to the Future and, and Fester, Fester mm-hmm. in The Addams Family and like so many more until I was much, much older and I went, wait, that's that's Chris. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, shoo. Fast forward, fast forward. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they have, I mean, you're you're connecting to a shoe. You know, you're connecting to these things and you feel that connection. And back to the one of the first things I said at the beginning of this whole shenanigans with the sexy lion. So Kovu, well, he is pretty well known as one of the more attractive characters out there in animation. He has the you know Flynn Rider effect before Flynn Rider was a thing that he is a very interesting like the colors they chose the the green eyes they gave him the fact that they made his eyes so expressive with the the eyelids and the eyebrows and everything he's able to go from like cute little innocent face to like smoldering (laughs) and it's a freaking lion I mean he's got eyeshadow He's got built-in eyeshadow. I mean, kind of. Yeah, kind of. But it's also like emo eyeshadow. And he does a lot of like side eyes and smirks and all of these just in the physical appearance. And then the voice. So the voice is Jason Marsden. I, I did know that, but thank you for reminding me, Kelly, because I had forgotten. And he's been the voice of many wonderful characters. But his voice added another layer to this character that made him you know gruff and sympathetic you know he he's able to convey so much of the emotion so that even though he is a bad boy who has one of the lines of all the disney movies that makes me go like 
this is made for kids, but on another level, it's also made for adults. Since you haven't seen it, Kelly, I'm going to say this line. So he's talking to Simba's daughter and he says, let's get out of here. We'll run away together and start a pride all our own. Okay. <laughs> I see. Uh, huh. And so you're just like, hmm, okay, this is a kid's movie, but it's also for the kid's parents. <laughs> and he has a little butt wiggle into that too, which is like oh, the best man. part. Oh, yeah. That just adds insult to injury right yep. there. Yeah. He's like, mm-hmm, let's do this. <laughs> uh, on, a, on an interestingly slightly related note, I just happened to look up. I'm on a, a website that says 15 animal cartoon characters that are inexplicably sexy. <laughs> and you've got you've got the ones that you kind of assumed were going to be there, like Lola Bunny from the first Space Jam, Roxanne from a Goofy movie. Here's what threw me off guard was number seven was from Pinocchio, Cleo, the goldfish. Yes, yes, her eyes. She's her in... eyes and her pouty lips. And, and her pouty I'm lips, like, she's very sultry. What? And she's yeah, able to do I, that that tail thing. Yeah. <laughs> I it was not I was caught off guard. I was completely thrown. <laughs> Did not expect that to be something. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, most of them they talk about are going to be you know, the more obvious ones that are female because the female characteristics are pretty easy to duplicate even on a creature that should not have boobs and a, and hips. And a badonkadonk, like, lizards are not mammalian, right? They're not going to have breasts. But you animate a lizard and you want it to attract to guys, may have boobs. It makes me think, like, I think earlier this year there was a whole discourse about dragonborns and lizard folk women in D&D having breasts. And they're like, yeah, and they're like, they wouldn't have those because they're not mammalian. And Let's talk about any kind of cow folk that has boobs on the front of their chests. Yes. Yeah. Instead of an udder. <laughs> yeah. Like way up high near their neck rather than where it normally goes anatomically, which is way down closer to the back legs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be, man, that's, that's, that brings a whole new thought to where the cleavage goes in a costume. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> this also makes me think of. A 1980s movie called Howard the Duck. This is not an animated movie. It's all live action and animatronics and puppets and stuff. And a bl- in a blink and you'll miss it moment, there is a bit where the camera kind of goes by a partially destroyed apartment building. And there is a woman who's enjoying her time in a bathtub. A woman, I say. Uh, this is in the Howard the Duck universe where all people are ducks. And this duck woman is in her bathtub enjoying her time. She's singing to herself and everything, and she's topless. And she has breasts with nipples. <laughs> Which makes no sense. And my, like, as a child, I didn't I didn't see it, because, again, it was a blink and you'll miss it kind of moment. I Because I watched this as a child, and I should not have. That was an adult movie, and I shouldn't have watched it. But as an adult, when I rewatched it and went, wait, how does that woman there, that duck lady, how does she have boobs? Because she get she gives birth to eggs. There's no milk involved. Why does she have boobs? I don't understand. It's so, one, it's one of the things that it drives me crazy when they're like, 
when we're trying to differentiate between a boy and a girl, we put a pink bow on it, give her eyelashes, maybe some makeup, and give her boobs. And that's something that started when they were doing this in the you know 40s and 50s for advertising, when they started doing the differentiation of trying to do targeted advertising to men, women, boys, and girls as separate entities. And it bled over into everything else because it was very easy for coding you know, and people are able to easily say, okay, this symbol is blah. So like, you could watch a movie and the movie has nothing but shapes. There's a square, there's a triangle, there's a circle. People are probably going to assume the circle is a female. Probably yep. assume that the square is a guy. Probably assume the triangle is a kid. They, they're yep. just going through like just based on those symbols there's no uh, there's nothing else about them just moving around they may have music or something but that's what they're gonna you know go through it's it's a very interesting phenomenon and something we have absolutely trained ourselves for and of course there's much more obvious ones that we go into that are going to be attractive or more human zootopia i think is one of the closest we've gotten with animals looking humanoid but also reflecting a little closer to their animal yeah. characteristics like it, size differences the size, and... yeah, exactly mm -hmm. the size differences between the animal characters was more more realistic than it has been portrayed in any previous animated movie as far as i am aware yeah. if there are if there are other ones that are way better definitely let us know we'll amend this and say oh hey we were wrong but my understanding is that that like seeing the the lemmings as such tiny little creatures the the mice and rats and everything and then you got the bunnies and the foxes and then you got the freaking elephants and you got the giraffes that are towering over all of them mm -hmm. like that was fascinating because it shows not only it shows the scale of the different creatures and how they can still be anthropomorphized and made to connect with the human audience but also how like what i liked about zootopia was that zootopia was literally trying to be a utopia where yes. all creatures great and small were accommodated for there was no one particular breed or size of breed that was the main the the main oh. it, it, it very it, it was less ableistic and more... exactly that's exactly what yeah. i was about to say because the whole thing is we live in a society that is very much focused on accommodating a set standard and anyone who is out of that standard is basically sol we try yeah. in some cases to have accommodations for them but they never truly change the society. The They're the default, yeah, the, the default, standard. the default yeah. assumptions are always going to be, oh yeah, well it's this, and then if if you aren't capable of doing it at that level, there's something wrong with you. It's not something wrong with society, which it is. <laughs> And that's one of the things that was really interesting with Zootopia because they didn't say like you're not capable. They were just like, oh okay, so this environment isn't designed for you here's your environment it's, yeah it's... they literally had a town for the smaller creatures mm -hmm. i think they called it like little rodentia which i thought was hilarious and that was all small things that even as as the bunny rabbit comes running in she 
realizes she's like, I have to slow down because I'm going to step on somebody and I don't want to do that. The, the I'm, other I'm... point I wanted to make relating to Zootopia is that that one is so close that it is not any stretch of imagination for you to look at like Gazelle or the hot tiger on the train or mm -hmm. any of those other ones and be like, oh, yeah, they are sexy. Like, that's cool because they have what we consider currently attractive traits in humans. They just happen and, to be furry and fun colors. And Shakira was, was the reason Gazelle. why Gazelle has the hips that she has. Mm -hmm. Because when Shakira saw the first um, mock-up of Gazelle, Gazelle was made to look a lot more slim and trim. And Shakira was like, no, you gotta have some hips. Like, give her a non-typical body type. Give her a little more oomph. Give her a little bit more junk in the trunk, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to kind of play with the figure and the proportions and everything to give her a less skinny, skinny kind yeah. of figure. I yeah. mean, yeah, she's a gazelle. A gazelle in general is going to be a slim and trim creature. But to evoke more of that like hey i'm sexy and i'm confident in my sexiness and you can't keep me down from that she had them give her a little bit more weight a little bit more of a non more meat on the bones yes a non-typical figure and i was super proud of shakira for doing that yeah and then she surrounded herself with sexy uh, tigers wearing tiny little booty shorts Literary thongs. <laughs> it was it was amazing i was just like 100 percent. let's let's watch this this is great something appealing for everyone <laughs> so yeah they just it's very interesting how they do those styles and i also think that as the years continue we've seen more options that are attractive to heterosexual women that are geared towards them i mean my first crush, like not just animated crush, but crush in general, was Dimitri from Anastasia. Fuh, just his little attitude, personality, the floofy hair. It was great. It was great. Bad boy with a heart of gold. <laughs> love him. Love him to pieces. The Han Solo of Don Bluth. Better. I love Han Solo, <laughs> but Dimitri's better. Dimitri would have said, I love you too, not I know, asshole. But they... They were one of my first crushes, and most of my crushes after that were either animated, often animals, anthropomorphized people, whatever, or aliens, weird colored people, strange things like that. Like, when the Avatar movie came out, I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, apparently I'm into blue people now. This is great. So, that's, that's fun. But the original side of these is like one of the easiest things was to draw sexy stuff that like guys would like because you could put a pretty mediocre drawing out there but if they had really great you know tatays and a booty people would be a fan that's why the internet is filled <laughs> with crazy like hyper inflation and uh, boobies and everything all over on the internet with like any character any character you can imagine has been drawn as somebody who has like size moon boobs 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're gonna be like yeah cool this is this is a thing now there are a, there are definitely things that i could draw relations to like i mean the fact that barbie was sculpted in such a way that if she were a human would not be able to walk upright yes that yes. has been proven that her proportions are so out of balance that she is not a capable human being. <laughs> I actually read a analysis they had where they said the only way that Barbie was going to be able to stand upright is if her boobs were actually inflated with air. And not human tissue. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Because then she would be conceivably able to do that. But then she's half blow-up doll or maybe full blow-up doll. And that's concerning. But Barbie yeah. as a character now actually is really cool. Like she had, they've done a great job with showing a attractive woman in many different fields. The Barbie movies are great. I think Princess and the Popper is one of like the most popular ones out there. <laughs> and all of the different aspects they've done diversity so like i'm not gonna rag on barbie at all but uh, the original format formulation (laughs) yeah it was definitely like who came up with this okay Mm. you sure so we see a lot of that in our content and we see uh, stuff that's now being geared more towards adults like you mentioned uh, before and it's so weird because originally animation was for adults like Felix the cat kids didn't really understand the concepts Betty Boop that was for adults olive oil and Popeye that was also for adults they ended up starting to make it for kids because they started seeing children enjoy these things but originally children weren't really going to the theater that was a big deal they weren't yeah. going out and going to these places originally. It was like the kid stays home when I go to the theater twice a year, you know, and that was like a well, big thing. People dressed up. Yeah. And and not only that, but like it was it was an occasion. It was like going to a play. They would dress up. It would be where they got their news because you didn't have a TV set in every home. It was just it was where they would get their entertainment and they could go and spend a tiny bit amount of money. To see something that everybody else was seeing, but they could spend a tiny fraction, like a little bit of amount of money to go and see something with a bunch of other people to get their news of the week, to Mm -hmm. have that little break from the grind of the daily work week. And, and just, it would, they would treat it as a little bit of an event and it would not be a family event. It would be something that you would do with your friends or something you would do with a potential date or a love interest. Or a significant other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And And the fact that, that animation came through and started becoming more focused at younger generations was a different concept. Mm -hmm. And then we had this whole section of time where adults kind of snubbed animation and it was just for the kids and parents had to suffer through animation and a lot of the animation early on wasn't good and even now you have those like rushed direct to video versions like now they're direct streaming direct streaming but yeah you have those those versions like there's a popular film that's coming out and as soon as the trailer drops or the concept art drops some b-list or z-list studio is like yeah we're gonna be able to capitalize on that confuse some grandparents into buying it for their grandkids perfect score 
Yeah, because and, we're going to change one word in the title or add an uh where there is no uh. Yep. <laughs> yep. And they're terrible, but in their own way are treasures of our filmography. <laughs> and I, I, I would like to actually start talking about where the animation really started to switch over back to being just a general film of general aspect of media where it yeah, started more off of an as, art as for adults. Yeah. It started off for adults and then it started moving towards children, children's entertainment. And again, became snubbed by the adults thinking that cartoons were kid stuff. And let me tell you, there's a reason why a slumber party I had when I was in, I think elementary middle school where they rented cool world was a very confusing time. Ooh, ooh, oh man. <laughs> they, wow. Yeah. Okay, yep. that's a fun slumber party. <laughs> yep, that was that was the the moment where a lot of us were like, "I have questions. I'm very confused." Yeah, I, I thought this was going to be like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which in itself was not supposed to be fully aimed at children, and yet still was. Cool World was a whole another realm, and ooh. Yeah, that made my brain go, I don't think I'm supposed to be watching this. <laughs> um, oh, man, that's amazing. But, yeah. That, that uh, was Hollywood, weird, weird got movie. she was a awakening for a lot of people. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to skip right over that. And <laughs> I'm going to actually point out that even, even in my youth, like animation was thought of as kid stuff but during my youth is when things started to really shift where animation we we had suddenly the new golden age of disney movies started coming out they had that that renaissance of like beauty and the beast little mermaid all of that yep, yep. where it was still kid stuff but the animators and the people who were behind it started to put in little extra bits of stuff to help entertain the parents that were inevitably seeing this for the 75th time. The fact that you're certain that Lumiere and the Feather Duster were having a pretty Flammable weird and complicated affair. affair. Yes, but this is all bringing to the point of my, the one thing that I have researched for this topic today, which is the creation and inevitable impact that computers had on animation it just it's fascinating and i've i've fallen into a deep dark hole with this just looking up one (laughs) short film (laughs) this all started with a short film called luxo jr this short film has gone down in history to have completely revolutionized the way animation has been looked at the way computers have been looked at for our future in nineteen <laughs> in nineteen seventy four, there was a little company that was making these computers that were trying to work on computer graphics. They didn't really know what graphics were going to be used for, but people were starting to see it as a way to enhance digital filmmaking. Because George Lucas was very, very much at the forefront of trying to get into digital because of what happened with his Star Wars films. Mm-hmm. Because Anybody who has ever worked with old celluloid film knows that there is a shelf life with that stuff. 
because after a certain amount of time has gone through, the film starts to turn red. And George Lucas saw this with the very first Star Wars film he made with A New Hope, because it had gone so long from when they had filmed it to when it was finally available for release because of all of the graphics and animation and things that they had to do with it along the way, that by the time it was first premiering, it had already started to turn red. And that was the moment where he was like, nope, we have to get into digital filmmaking. We have to do something better than this because we cannot continue with what we're doing now. It's just going to get worse with how long it takes. So because of that, he started all these these parts of the studios he started pilfering from other companies and a little computer company called pixar had some people working on it like really starting to experiment with the technology of the time again this is the 70s and the computing power that was available to them and fast forward to 1986 when a conference on computer graphics an annual conference on computer graphics called SIGGRAPH, S-I-G-G-R-A-P-H, which is Special Interest Group on Computer Graphics and Interactive Techniques. But 1986, a man named John Lasseter and a bunch of other people from Pixar decided they were going to make a, enter a two-minute film. They had never been in this, in this conference before, but they wanted to enter one of their films. And while other people were showing things like how a flag waves in the air or how how they can animate ocean waves and the sunlight reflecting off of the water right here comes john lassiter and instead of just showing what they were supposed to be showing which i believe was shadow mapping of the time with their rendering software he instead creates a story where a large lamp is watching a smaller lamp play with a ball and instantly after the end of this two minutes, just two minutes, even before the whole thing had ended, the entire 6,000-person auditorium had stood to their feet and were applauding. People came out and were talking with him and saying, oh my god, how did you do that? I can't believe you made like a father and son. Like they didn't even, there were no genders, they were just two desk lamps. No facial features whatsoever. The lamps were exactly what they were the only animation was that they were moving in ways that the lamps could physically move but in doing so in adding a little bit of life to them they conveyed this cute little parent and child dynamic of a parent watching its child play with a ball make a mistake deflate the ball and feel some sort of sadness yeah and to evoke that amount of emotion, the joy in the child running after this ball and jumping up and down, and then later finding a beach ball that they can play with, and the exasperation of the parent watching this child, or the shame of the poor child realizing that they had done a bad thing in popping the ball. And just all of those emotions conveyed in less time than it takes you to like get out of bed and get dressed in the morning. <laughs> it is one of those fascinating things because it's something that once it's done everyone's like oh yeah obviously like but at the time there was something that no one was thinking of it was no one revolutionary was doing. yes yeah 
because everybody was showing different aspects of what their pro computer programs and their computer processors could do. Like again, showing very stagnant scenes. They were they were showing waving. they were showing scenes that reflected reality because what they were trying to do with their technology was capture the world outside to the point where you could not differentiate it. And what right. Pixar did is they were like, why would I need to do that? <laughs> They brought it to life. They yes. literally brought it to life. Yes. And because of that, that one moment in 1986 where they showed this short film changed how animation was viewed, changed how computer graphics was viewed. Because from then on, graphics, computer graphics became a staple in the filmmaking industry. I don't think there's a single movie in existence that you can watch today without a little bit of computer animation in it. They and do it's it for just, small things, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like, And now we've got movies like Free Guy, yeah. where that movie could not be possible without computer animation. Yeah. I mean, or I was just thinking, I was thinking a little cutesy short with two lamps led to The Matrix. You yeah. Know, like, it led to The Matrix. It led to the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. That's crazy. Which again started with comic books and started with some cartoons on Saturday morning, you know, seeing like the X-Men, which I think was a staple of the 1990s. Uh-huh. And now we have people, live people doing these crazy things with the magic of computer animation and how things have gone so far and how you can have oh god, in Shang-Chi there's a moment where there is a dragon. I'm trying yep. not to spoil things. But there is a dragon, and there is a moment where you kind of have a panic attack because of what is happening around said dragon. <laughs> and that emotion could not be possible without these amazing animators that have such a grasp on these these technologies, these techniques, and the way the, that it's things not, are evoked. It's not just the animators. It, it is also people who have spent their lives studying humans. And facial expression, emotion, and how it's evoked. And a lot of it is a lot of trial and error. Because if you look through the test drawings and styles of characters for any animated show, they go through a ton of different character designs. So there's a ton of different styles that people will go through where they're trying to test it out. I think of all the styles they had for uh, Toothless in how to train your dragon and they were like oh this one's too scary this one's too cutesy this one's too you know fluffy this one's too sleek and they finally settled on what i think is the perfect drawing like stylization for toothless he's he's it's, fabulous it's a it's a dragon cat hybrid. yes yes yeah. and that's exactly it and they watched yeah. cats and they're movements when they were working on his movements and abilities so they learn from the world and then they adapt it to other things that's what i think is so interesting because yeah. animation is a in and of itself is an art leading lending itself to experimentation it is a, an avenue and a tool that you can do so much with and no one's really going to tell you not to I mean, there's going to be people who say, like, that won't sell. Yeah, screw you. I don't care if it does. I just want to have fun and see if I can animate the 
life of a, a plover. You know, that freaking cute little short they have of oh, oh Piper. It's bird? called Piper. Yeah. Piper. Yeah. But Piper is a sandpiper. Yeah. So Piper, another short. Like, oh, yeah. Just, oh, that won't sell. It doesn't matter. I want to do a, a little short on the life of a tiny little sea seabird. And people are like, well, that's silly. But it's adorable. And honestly, like, if you look at Disney+, Plus, they have a whole section where they have their shorts available for mm-hmm. you to watch. Although I... I definitely recommend when you're watching the specific the the i think it's a a collection under one title where it's the animated shorts be careful some of them like actually the majority of them in that one particular collection will rip your heart out yep i was about to say (laughs) they are so sad oh my god i was not expecting that but a lot of the other shorts the shorts that would be airing that be shown before the pixar main features those were kind of showing where their animation was going and what they would be focusing on next there was one of my favorite animated shorts that they did which was the bird on a wire i love that one oh my god so cute all these cute little tiny fluffy circle birds sitting on a wire being all gossipy and then you've got this one that's a little bit outside the box bigger louder maybe stupider you're not sure because there's no words it's just sounds and you hear that poor poor large bird that doesn't know that all of these other birds don't want him to be around and he's all like ha 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 while all of the ones are tweety 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 and you could see the dynamic instantly in the attitudes of the little tiny birds that are like oh this guy (laughs) i love that one and in the very end they're all kind of shown what for because yep you know, you reap what you sow. Yes. And that was an experimentation in seeing how, like, feathers and stuff would work, how their animation would work on those particular characters. I know so. that Sandpiper dealt with water, and that mm-hmm. came out before, I don't think it was Finding Nemo, I think it was before Moana, because in Moana, the ocean is its own character. Yeah. So, speaking of emotion in animation and ripping your heart out i have to of course talk about the most devastating and beautiful story up specifically the first 10 minutes of up and how the majority of that is without any words it's just following their lives with a little jaunty tune that gets sadder and sadder and a little more forlorn but it follows the progression of their lives and their joy and everything just through these tiny little moments it is one of the most poignant film anything's i've seen montage montage yeah it's it's so powerful and it's better than anything i've seen as live action it's gorgeous and it immediately tells you exactly what mental state the character is in at the beginning of the film you know who this grumpy guy is you know you know where he's coming from he Mm -hmm. is missing the light that was in his life and he's grieving and you you understand why you're grieving right along with him you look at those chairs oh man you just want to cry like 
the shape of the chairs and everything like those aren't real chairs i think i watched a youtube video of some lady trying to diy her own ellie chair and like it was nearly impossible because it couldn't physically have support (laughs) and still look that delicate but it's freaking adorable and a lot of the aspects of that are over exaggerations the characteristics are just a little out of whack but each of those exaggerations is intentional to add an aspect of the personality. So when you see him and how he is very square and boxy, low to the ground, stocky, stalwart, he's not moving. He's a rock. And mm-hmm. you see the bouncy, bubbly kid. You see the very bouncy, bubbly dog, the dangerous explorer guy that I can't remember the name of now. And how he is much more sharp angles and broad shoulders, narrow waist and very sharp eyes. Like the ability to convey so much of a personality to give you an immediate, this is the villain, this is the good guy. And how they can do that with the shape of the eyes, the furrow of a brow, the explorer guy and up, you start out thinking you're friends. And then when he now has you in his sights and he's the enemy, the eye shape changes, the focus changes, coloration and lighting, the the camera angle changes so that you're no longer looking at him from a um, direct eye contact now you're looking at him from below and he's looming over you it's those aspects that are so fascinating to me where it conveys that emotion it gets you into the scene where you're just like oh no this is bad Um, plus i'd also like to point out the fact that the details of the dogs that were chosen by this character that all of the dogs that were chosen except for doug are aggressive dog breeds they are Doug. they are known Doug is a retriever. To, they are known to be aggressive. They themselves are not. I will clarify on that because Okay. Because, known to be. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I apologize. No, that's fine. Because a lot of people Pitbulls are amazing. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of people they're just like, oh no, that's a dangerous dog. And you're like, okay, it's how they're raised, but sure, you have the connotation right. of it. Exactly. It's all it's all from the owner. Yeah. And but so that whole are... thing with all the connotations, that's why they're where they're going with all this stuff. It's like it's an immediate trigger, a coding that you can be like, boop, that's what that means. But it's also an indicator right off the bat when you see all of these different dogs, they're all intended to be more guard dog yes. than anything except for Doug. Doug is a retriever. <sighs> of course, Doug is going to be the one that finds the creature. Because Doug is the only dog involved in this entire group that has any instinct to actually find them. (laughs) Okay, so my brain just went, wait, what? Poof. Yeah. Did you not know that? Nope. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) That makes so much sense. It's a little subtle indicator. And it was something that I thought was so cool that that makes so much sense. Yeah, it's it's one of the, the little tiny little details that a lot of these animators do there are so many different movies that do that that have those little tiny details that if you didn't realize it at the beginning if you go back and look at it and you go oh wait of course doug is the one that found this this creature of course he is because he's a freaking retriever yeah that's amazing yeah all the other dogs they're not meant for that i've always felt a kinship to kevin from up 
at the yes. time that Kevin was, I watched up, I used to always wear a black jacket that had rainbow sleeves and mm-hmm. I can do this like neck bog- bobbing thing that makes me look like a weird chicken. And <laughs> I would be able to do the, you know, s- Kevin sounds. So when I'm out there watching it with my family, we're in theaters. My entire family turns and looks at me and goes, you're Kevin. And I was like, you're not wrong, but. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Kevin seems to be fairly based off of that bird from Bird on a Wire. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Which is which is why I brought it up when I was yeah. thinking about when you were saying they were referencing stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's ugh, that's so cool. That's why I love animation. Like the the evolution, like we could talk about movie after movie, show after show. And I I mean, before we kind of tie things up, I wanted to talk about the other sides of animation and how there can be anime there could be digital animation there can be stop motion like uh you were mentioning Wallace and Gromit uh Nightmare for Christmas those types I do I do want to quickly point out South Park was originally intended to be made by hand with paper cutouts I do I did know that yeah the pilot was originally filmed like that and because they realized how long it would take they would never be able to release a weekly show like that they switched over to digital animation yeah, but it still has yeah. that paper cutout vibe. Yep, with the power of like the I think the computer servers that also do Hubble research. <laughs> I I love that stuff because all of these different styles of animation are still recognizable. the The human brain is fascinating. The ability <laughs> to find those connections and see them, and I think. Uh, and I, I could be wrong because I'm vaguely remembering the study from when I was in college. But it was talking about the psychology and the the physical act, uh, physical biology of the human brain, and how all the stimulus that we're getting now is so exponentially higher, so much exponentially more than we've ever had in any previous generation of humanity. The last hundred years has been an insane explosion and children are getting so much earlier exposure. So, you know, we're having so many more examples of things. We have so much digital media, so many ads, so much content that is stacked on top of each other. And our language has a human language in general has always been referential. It's always been, you know, inside jokes, talking about things that everyone else would know, things that are, shared experiences that we can then talk about but the amount of that in our language now is staggering i think of the gilmore girls and how so many of their jokes were just talking about historical events scenes from movies songs shows things that if you weren't in the know would go right over your head and so many people we're able to follow that. And just in general, whenever someone's talking, how many times do you just talk to somebody and you start talking about a quote or you sing a little bit of a lyric? You call somebody a character from a show because they remind you of them. You know, it's like, oh, humans, yeah. Yeah. Humans, humans used to speak about their own experiences. But nowadays, younger generations, including mine, speak via pop culture references 
Yes. And Speak via memes. Yeah. We've we've always been a memeing society and literature and, and art. Yes, exactly. Like it's never I, I don't want to ever say like <laughs> this is a new phenomenon because it's not, but it is at a degree that has never before been seen. Yeah. And the fact that we start children so young with animation, we have them have this exposure and then we expect them to, you know, come up with their own content. I mean, how many people when you oh just let it go? And then you're like, let it go, let it go. You yeah. just, you can't help I could it. Do, I could I could live the rest of my life not hearing that song again. Uh, <laughs> uh, I never understood the obsession with it and why it was so popular. I feel like that was um overhyped, but it there is was... in general a okay. Uh, song <laughs> yeah it was an okay song there was a point when I worked at, at a company that I will not name but there was a point where I worked at this company where it was essentially a call center and we had a boombox that would play in the section that had people that were working mostly via email and, and chat rather than via phone so it was less audible on the phones but daily daily that song would be requested and played on that boombox every single day. Terrible. And I could not go one eight-hour shift without hearing that stupid, stupid song for probably <laughs> about a year. And mm. I hadn't even seen the film at that point. Yep. And I was already done. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that is definitely another aspect. We're going to have to talk about how pervasive music is in society. Yes. Yeah. There's so many things. Actually, that hmm. yeah, that's actually that's something that I definitely want to go into. How hollow notes is everywhere. <laughs> okay, write it down. It's on our list. <laughs> I'll put it down. But in general, it's just a fascinating thing with all these types of animation. That I'm curious if somebody from 1821 was to watch one of our films, how easily they would be able to follow it. Because if they were an adult who had no prior exposure, I think that it may take them a little while to fully be able to process what they're seeing, to be able to follow the stories and the characters. And I could be wrong, but that was what I recall from that class that we were talking about that had this transformation in humans and what we've done. It's so interesting to me but you know you get these very simplistic drawings of characters their facial features as minimal as they possibly can like you see in anime where it's like giant eyes and like two lines and you're like that's a face mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're able to follow along with what's happening and build that emotion and how it's cultural so things that are geared more towards the U.S. have different focuses. Things that are geared towards South America have, you know, different references, different emphasis put on their characters and how we pull so much of our animation from the real world, but it gives us an opportunity to refine, perfect, explore, tweak, change. You, you, you're in a, a fantasy world that could be without some terrible thing, you know, without crime, without racism, and everyone just kind of accepts that that's how it is. Or you could go into one that's hyper-realistic, that calls out those 
problematic issues in a safe place. A lot of the time in a way that can communicate those challenges to others that maybe would be resistant because it's not pointing blame. Most of the time, a lot of the time with these types of things, it's it eases you into the hard stuff. Except Disney when it keeps killing moms. That doesn't ease you into anything. That's just like in your face. She's can we, dead. Can we stop it with that? I mean, yeah, my goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually, I do want to quickly reference one thing. I know anybody with a Disney Plus account at this point has probably seen the newest release of Star Wars Visions, which is the samurai a, one. It's an, an animated series that they're basically just individual close-ended episodes Mm -hmm. so each episode is its own standalone story and each episode is done in a different animation style and they're all predominantly asian influenced Mm -hmm. influenced because star wars is originally asian influenced yes and anybody who doesn't think that should probably look up some more george lucas information Mm mm-hmm is based off of Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, come on, people. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that are seeing these these different animation types. The first episode and the second anima- second episode are wildly different animation styles, and they're beautiful. But both of them are telling different types of stories. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating the way that each style is evoking that particular plot type. And I've heard some people are really upset at the fact that, like, oh, why did they have to make it so Japanese? Why did they have to make it so Asian, so Mongolian, so whatever? And I'm like, first of all, shut up. Second of all, <laughs> like, that's the origin of these stories. The lightsabers that they use in Star Wars are based off of samurai swords, katanas. Like, that's that's what they're based off of. Like, dude, they're wearing traditionally the robes, yeah. Asian robes. You can't look at Queen Amidala and not tell me that that doesn't have an age, that her hair is not Asian in nature. Yep. Like, even the kabuki style makeup that she is wearing. Come on. So, that, purely from an animation standpoint, it's it's quite beautiful. I've only seen the first two episodes. I have not continued on. Mike, I think, is actually the one who's watching all of that right now. But... It's it's something that's quite fascinating to see these different aspects of the Star Wars universe that I believe is all supposed to be canon to the Star Wars universe in a style that is animated so they can do more with the the media. Yep. You can see a lot more things that they wouldn't have to have a human stand in trying to oh, do I mean, an acrobatic that... trick over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> that makes me think of Clone Wars and how they did such yeah. a good job. That was a very hard animation style for me to get into because I was like, this is weird because uh, it wasn't what I was used to. But they did such an amazing job of being able to tell those stories that would have been very difficult to have live action, yeah. have way more of the stunts, have tons of clones and all of their you know similar outfits and situations that you're still able to tell them apart more easily as animation than you ever would have been as real people. Yep, 100%. And that's something that I think is amazing and it definitely shows the power of animation. How you can have all of these different types of stories all within the same universe and all I, told in a different style. I love yes. it. I absolutely love it. 
And it, I think that circles back to your original point of how you know George Lucas was originally so dissatisfied with that red shift that was going on in his film. He's consistently shown that he's pushing the boundaries with what they're capable of doing with the technology available. He, yeah. He's never satisfied with just being like, well, we did this and it was really good. He's always like, okay, next. Okay, next. Yeah, and there's there's a reason why Star Wars came out with a remastered version that actually had a CGI Jabba the Hutt, and I was not happy with it. When they redid the cantina scene with CGI aliens singing, and oh, like let's say I had both the original and the remastered versions on VHS, but there is a distinct difference. I get what he was trying to do. This was his original vision. But bro, stop. <laughs> never satisfied yeah i but, get it i'm a writer i get it but like, there's a point where you just have to say you know what let it go i have moments where i think about the books that i actually have published on amazon and i'm like oh i need to tweak that in this before it goes to wait no it's already in print stop it so <laughs> like i have those moments where i start rethinking a story and going maybe i should have changed this part here to make it a little bit more fluid how it moves on to that part. They're like, stop. Nope. It's already out. I'm not going to go back and do a director's cut of my own book. So <laughs> we're good. We don't need the Snyder cut, people. We do not need the Snyder cut of everything. Nope. But that's the the animation piece. Like, that's where this evolution from the early 20th century to now, the... Mm -hmm massive amount of change we've had in a hundred years is honestly staggering like a lot of times people try to think back like the world hasn't changed that much but it truly truly has and our understanding of what is normal our expectations all of that is so different and every time you're there at the forefront it is revolutionary and I have been in the forefront for my entire life. Everything I have seen has been pushing the boundaries. And then I go back and watch stuff that I originally thought had amazing graphics, amazing animation. And I'm like, ooh, this is, this is rough. The Frighteners, anybody? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. We thought that was so cool when we right? first saw it. And we look at it now, we're like, ooh. <laughs> Because that's what, those things where you're just like, oh, my gosh, because your expectations keep raising the what yep. you what you're seeing keeps needing to be elevated. And it's because you know technology doesn't sleep. It doesn't stop. It just keeps going. And yeah. people need to keep adapting with it. And every new person is pushing that boundary. And I love that. I love that so much about what we're in. And I love that there's so much variety out there. I, I binge watched six animes in the last week because I was like, yeah, I'm in a mood for animes. And they were amazing. If anyone wants to watch one of like the best whoops, serendipity, I'm an amazing, like I'm the most powerful person in the world anime where this person is like super naive and nice and doesn't know what they're doing, but still manages to be a hero. Bofuri, Bofuri on Hulu. Super great kind of like a DD dungeon crawler but she's my favorite right now but there's so many <laughs> others and the fact that i can do that and that it's mainstream 
That was not mainstream before. It used to be Saturday morning cartoons. And then it would switch over and it would have like live action shows or or PBS, public access. And they would be showing like Reading Rainbow and Sesame Street and such. But you would watch like the best stuff in the beginning. And then you'd be like, okay, now we're done. Don't need to do this anymore. And as adults, they'd be like, oh, you're still watching that? And some adults still do. Some adults are like, you're still watching that? And you're like, okay, you know what? Let's talk about the power of Adventure Time or Steven Universe or what is the one that takes place in the pines? Gravity Falls. Yeah. So like all of those. Yeah. They're the lore. The lore is insane. In some of these. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's. One of my favorite YouTube channels, Film Theory and Game Theory with, with MatPat. Like film, film Theory, will, he will go into all of the lore that is in, like, Gravity Falls. And and go deep into, like, I, I don't watch it, so I really can't tell. But, like, who is this person? Who is the real identity of this character? Whatever mm-hmm. happened to that other person? And, like, the lore is so in-depth that you're like, yeah. It's the kids show, except it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like what kids show is going to have all of that in it? It's like insane. I love it. Mm -hmm. And I have learned so much from animated shows. There's so many shows where I'm just like, oh, this is, this is a kid's show. This is silly. And then you watch it. You're like, well, that was educational. <laughs> to be uh, fair, the graphic animation, the computer animation, everything also bleeds into video games of today. Yes. Like I, like I said to you earlier, I'm replaying Psychonauts 2 because, yes, that's what I do. <laughs> I replay games that I've played before because Psychonauts is my jam. And I'm replaying Psychonauts 2, but that type of, that style of animation and the story type that, that is involved in that show, in that, that game, would not have been possible had it not been for the amazing efforts of these computer engineers, essentially, yes, yes. that were working on the way animation styles, how they tweak the face, how they make how they make a blender in Psychonauts two a character. it's brief but they're there Um. I mean talking about like the animation style of of video games I think is a whole nother episode because we can start talking about from Pong to now where it is a cinematic experience that you can hardly separate from reality yeah Um, I mean nothing's gonna make me feel emotion over a set of luggage like Psychonauts does (laughs) Emotional baggage. Yeah. And I have emotions for that emotional baggage. <laughs> oh, I love it. I... Anyway, anyone who's already listened to our episode where you get to go into detail on your love of Psychonauts, I think we'll understand a little more on that. <laughs> yeah. Our Psychonauts episode was episode nine. If you look back at episode nine, we talk, we go into a deep dive with Psychonauts too with my sister and I who both have played it and yeah it's so good but yeah we could definitely get into the animation style of video games see where that goes that's a whole nother episode Woo! yeah but I guess to tie things up this whole thing is just the power of animation it's it's kind of this is a love story to the power of animation yeah. <laughs> love letter to the power of animation and of uh, how amazing it is how moving it is and how appreciative I am to be in a time where I have this abundantly available. 
but also that I am so impressed with how much we continue to advance here. And I look forward to seeing what's next. Even even animation that makes me go, Ugh. like their original design they had for Sonic the Hedgehog when they were trying to make a movie. And oh. you're just like, that's horrifying. And yeah. the internet bullied them into fixing it. Like, I love that. But it's so interesting that, you know, people are continually pushing the boundaries, waiting to see when when we cross over that threshold into the uncanny valley. Yeah. And I mean, now we have now we have animation both for children and adults and basically of all ages. We've got Adult Swim that has animation for the more mature audiences. You've got Mm -hmm. Archer on FX. You've got Q-Force. I think this is on Netflix right now. Bojack Horseman. Definitely Bojack Horseman. Yeah. Like all of these that are definitely aimed towards an adult audience. Yes. Um, Tripping the Rift, Drawn Together. Those were... Oh man, <laughs> drawn together. Oh, that used to be my thing, man. We would watch The Daily Show and Drawn Together as a double feature. That would be great. <laughs> my late night. Oh, so good. It aired on Wednesdays on Comedy Central. I remember exactly. I was in college. It was fantastic. It was so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's, they did such a good job with that. But then they also have ones that are clearly you know towards kids that sometimes get appropriated by adults i i think my little pony and the bronies yeah yeah. care bears care bears and then they have ones that are you know truly for kids and seem to be popular with kids the very horrifying animation of what is that whole set on netflix the uh, coco melon that I there is something about the Coco Melon style animation that I find disturbing, and apparently little kids love it. But oh, the it, really round face with big eyes. It's not the round face and big eyes. It's it's the like they're clearly somebody made like a three D model, and they just kind of went, "Yep, this is it." the that that was that whole thing last year where it was the mama papa i don't know Yeah, this is something i don't know anything about i'm just looking at images of it on google right now so yeah it uh, and it's it's in like in other languages and stuff which is great you know really super supportive of all that stuff but i i think that maybe the animation's gotten a little better but there's just something about it that always has disturbed me it just feels a little wrong maybe it's the dad's eyes it's the lack of eyelids for me they do have eyelids like, i know they have eyelids but when their eyes are open they, they are not visible. all open yeah that's another thing how animation can also be haunting yes freddy fazbear anybody like when i first watched code lyoko i don't know if you ever remember that show nope loved that also weird animation style and the first time I watched it, I was like, this isn't good. And then I kept watching it because they had a good storyline. And now I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's just a normal animation style now. But it, it took a little while for me to be like, okay, I accept this. I've accepted it into my heart. And the- when computer animation was really starting to be a thing in, in TV shows was uh, a weird time when roly polioli was a thing oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, when i looked at that i was like i do not like this yep i don't like everything that is involved in this yep i don't I, it's just i don't know what it is 
like it was very very basic and the the Mickey's... I don't know something something in me was like this is unnatural. <laughs> the Mickey's I think it was Mickey's Clubhouse or one of one of the Mickey things they had where they had these like plasticky versions of each of the characters just disturbs mm-hmm. me. Like the new the new Teen Titans also I'm kind of like that's weird. But I again it's like a style they're they're pushing the boundaries and they get better and better. So it's it's something where animation it's a hit or it, it can hit it can miss most of the time it's positive but i love how we're able to convey so much emotion get stories we're getting these amazing tales like coco oh gosh that whole story of exploring dia de, de los muertos we're, we're seen it i saw luca you haven't seen coco no, I keep meaning to watch it and I keep not doing it. You need to. It's so good. And I'm afraid I'm going to feel things. You're going to feel things if you don't <laughs> feel things. Because Pixar always makes me feel things. If you don't feel things, then you are dead inside. It is so beautiful and so well done. So you should watch Coco. Do it. <laughs> but they are able to tell these amazing stories and have the culture showcased as its own character within it and have this magical ability like you see things in fantastical ways that would be very hard to portray in a real life live action environment they are able to make things glow and shine and float in the air you're just like this is amazing they they have a great thing i mean disney problematic in a few ways of regarding this the family they based story off of didn't get any compensation of any kind that's a different issue but still a beautiful story still good representation wonderful highly recommend but gorgeous animation and the way they show so many of the cultural aspects as so beautiful is something that I really love because I feel like they showed it a lot of respect and reverence that has been missing in a lot of animation. The amount of stories we have in popular animation movies in particular that are showing European princesses that are showing fairy tales from, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales that are showing things that are white centric. (laughs) And then we have the other examples that are representation of others and they're notable because they are singular, (laughs) you know? So princess and the frog and Mulan, (laughs) Moana, they, they stand out. They're unique, but again, different topic, different story. Um, just loving this beautiful use of animation and the different styles that we have and the mo- amount of emotion that is evoked. I cry more from animated shows than I have ever done for live action. I empathize Same. more with a cartoon animal yep. than I do with a person. <laughs> yep. That shoe. <laughs> that poor shoe oh god oh yeah i it's it's a fascinating subject it's something that we'll probably touch on again in the future because animation has such a wealth 
of of content content that's the word yeah it has such a, a wealth of content that we can delve into the adult stuff the kids stuff and everything in between is just it's so prolific we can pick a genre we can pick an art style we can pick an animation house we can yeah. pick a, a type of story we we can pick an era we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna have a lot more opportunities but this is kind of broad strokes just covering the main topic of animation emotion conveying human characteristics in a way that resonates all of those factors are just so fascinating and I'm so yeah. thankful again. And I'm, I have so much animation stuff that I still need to watch. Like my list is massive. There's so much out there and it, it's like the to be read list. And when you start calculating just how to be watched, how much stuff is needs to be seen and then how many hours of my life I have until I die. And then they keep making more content Yep. I'm never going to see it all. That's <laughs> true. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of the main thing that, you know, we're just animation is powerful. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from other people. Did you have an animated crush? And who was it? And <laughs> more weird, the better. Because I would love yeah. to hear that. Everybody knows about the Jessica Rabbits. And a lot of people know about the Little Mermaids. Mm-hmm. Let's be fair. Mm-hmm. We know. There were a lot of dudes I know that were wondering what were underneath those little shell clams. <laughs> oh, the shell bra. Man, that was yeah. so funny. How uh, do they stick there? There must have been so much glue. But yes, tell us tell us your animated crushes, your animated awakenings. The first anime that made you go, oh, I might be too young for this. Yeah. <laughs> that pushed the boundary a little bit. Yeah. 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 Was it yeah. cool world like me? Because, <laughs> oof. <laughs> that was a night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Yeah. Check us out. Talk to us. I know I don't post all that much on Twitter, but we're there. I will listen. So catch us on, catch us on Twitter at chronic underscore media you can email us at chronic media consumption at gmail.com instagram is chronic underscore media pod send us your suggestions send us your thoughts send us your answers to our weekly questions on what do you think let us know we want you guys to participate in the conversation yes we are shouting into the void but we know that you're listening Void and the, the fact void. that you're listening, shout back. We are here for you. <laughs> we are not just voices in the endless void. I mean, we are, actually. We are. Yeah. Neither of us has a physical form. We are purely voices that s- resonate inside of this void named Boyd. We are just <laughs> wavelengths. <laughs> we are tiny balls of frequency. And light. I'm kind of purplish. I'm kind of bluish. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> wow. See, now that has to be on merch. I'm going to have to have two little balls of light that are vibrating. Like, Hello, frequencies. I'm Kelly and I'm Michelle. <laughs> 100% we're making that. <laughs> so, yeah, so we would love to hear back of, you know, any feedback, thoughts, your own animated crushes, all of that fun stuff. 
We're going to hopefully be starting a Patreon at some point soon. So if you have any suggestions on what kind of benefits you would like, let us know. Again, chronic underscore media on Twitter and chronic underscore media pod on Instagram and email us at chronicmediaconsumption at gmail.com. We're here to listen to you too. I'm Kelly. And I'm Michelle. And we will talk to you again. And bye bye